Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. So, hello, everyone. Um, thank you for coming to today's event, which is a special seminar co-hosted between SNID, so Studies in National and International Development, uh, and Migration Speaks. I'm Dr. Carolyn Prouse. I'm a co-chair of SNID alongside Dr. Aija Tomach, and we're presenting today's seminar with Dr. Rina Kukreja, who organizes Migration Speaks. We come to you today from the traditional and ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. SNID is committed to taking seriously our presence on this land and to truth, reconciliation, and decolonization more broadly. For that reason, we are really excited to announce that our final speaker for this term SNID on November 25th will be the Honourable Chancellor Murray Sinclair to speak about truth and reconciliation in Canada and at Queen's. So please join us for that in two weeks time. We are also of course very excited for today's speaker uh, and I will hand over to Rena for introductions. Uh, but before doing that, I just wanted to say a big thank you to Rena. Uh, she's an Assistant Professor in Global Development Studies at Queen's. She's not officially affiliated with SNID, but sometimes it feels like she's a fourth behind the scenes organizer. She is very early in the process, helping supply us with ideas for speakers, helping to arrange their visits. Um, so I just wanted to extend a thank you to Rena for everything that you do for SNID, um, even though it's you're not officially affiliated with us. Thanks, Rena. Um, and over to you. Um, thank you, Carolyn, um, and Aicha and Iron, um, for taking me up each time I've approached you with, uh, with an idea. And you've always been amazingly receptive. Um, yeah, and it's been a pleasure to work with the three of you, and I hope the association continues in the future as well. Um, Today, it really gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Arubis Ingvars, um, who I know both as a colleague, um, as an amazing scholar, and I, who I hope is also going to become my friend in the future. Um, she's an adjunct in sociology and a researcher at the GEST program at the Institute for Gender Equality and Difference at the University of Iceland. Currently, her work focuses on the experiences of queer refugees who are deported to Italy and Greece on the Dublin grounds. She's furthermore associated with the research team on men in migration at the Center for Gender Studies at Karlstad University in Sweden, where she continues to follow refugee activists as they unsettle in Germany. I just want to add more beyond this dry thing. She's a scholar who's doing cutting edge work that intersects bordering regimes, masculinities, and queer identities of racialized refugee men. She's also an amazingly generous scholar who I know supports scholar, students and other scholars working in the fields of inquiry such as myself by sharing her time, her perceptive theorizations, and sharing contacts in the field with those beginning to take baby steps in fieldwork. I know from my own fieldwork, and you know, and this is something to be valued. Um, I know from my own fieldwork how the figure of mothers figures in the narratives when migrant men speak. So I don't want to take too much time, but I want to hear from our this about how the ghosts of mothers figure in the narratives of refugee men. So over to you, our this, um, and just a quick note. Um, you know, after you end your uh, presentation, there'll be Q&A and I hope you'll be able to host it yourself. So thank you. Thank you, Rena. Uh, it's been, a we say, okay, that's, that's not for me to admit, okay? Thank you very much for inviting me and offering me this talk to, to discuss this topic of the mother. Uh, so in this presentation, um, let me start by sure I should share the screen. Let me see here. Start with sharing the screen. I think this one. Are you looking at my PowerPoint now? Um, yes, we are. 
Like this. Okay, so in this presentation, I will first demonstrate the ethnographic context of my fieldwork uh, in my, my multi-sided studies. Uh, then I will read a short vignette following the theories of ontology and affect masculinities. After that, I will focus on my informant's relationship with her mothers. Then I aim to uh, unveil the recurrent precarity they experiences and experience, and lastly illuminate their refusal and agency to morph their ghostly appearance into the laughing fox. So. Now in my current studies, I am building on networks that I made during my field work in, uh, conducted between 2012 and 2018 among immobile men that were involved with the leftist solidarity movements in Athens. I generally practiced engaged ethnography and partly that entails uh, keeping the communication channels open. Thus, I have known some of my interlocutors for over a decade and often refer to them as, as confiders, friendly informants, or simply as friends. Some have stayed in Greece for, uh, while others have, uh, few have returned to their country of citizenship and few have moved on and gained a refugee status or residency permit in other European countries, particularly in Germany, Sweden, and France. They are of various ethnicities, uh, but and during the interviews, they have been in the ages between 20 to 50. Most are cis, straight men, but few identify on the, gen, uh, on the queer spectrum. Now, I have been able to revisit Greece several times and also few in, in France, but in general, the communication with the ones in Germany and Sweden have been through the social media. But last summer, I received a grant from Karlstad University and was able to carry out some on-site work among seven key interlocutors in Baden-Württemberg and Hassan states in Germany. So let me start by conveying a short story. My mother is afraid of heights, so she cannot fly, said Elias in hushed tones last May as we walked together to COVID-19 test center located in a mall in the Northwest of Germany. All around us were security guards, and thus we kept our discussion of travel notes, uh, of travels in low notes. We meant to sit down somewhere quiet to talk, but the coffees demanded all, all demanded a negative speed test result. Thank tests were free as Elias has lost his work during the pandemic. On and off he worked as a deliverer of food and other things and thus could still send remittances to his mother and siblings. His father had passed away, and as the oldest son, Elias felt responsible for his family. Currently, his family lives in Jordan, where life is harsh and getting more expensive. Elias, as a Syrian refugee, has not seen his mother for over seven years, as family reunification have proved difficult, partly because his mother is afraid to fly. Have you tried to visit her in Jordan? I asked, knowing that some of my confiders tend to use this opportunity to see their families, use the first opportunity they get to see their families after they have received a refugee status. They often did this by flying close to the borders of their countries and then their families crashed over or they attempted the clandestine routes and became the fox to reference Sharam Khosrabi symbolism and thus they traveled under the radar of the border guards. This is not possible anymore. They make you sign a paper uh, when, you, when you get refugee residency that you will not try to visit your family, said Elias, and they watch you. It will not work anymore to go to the next country because they know of it. Now they watch you, and I know people who have lost the refugee status because they tried. Elias' expression unveiled multiple specters that haunt him as a subaltern being in Germany. In recurrent disruption of his life and the lives of his loved ones, he is situated in a constant state of unsettlement. He is unable to perform a caring role towards his family due to the economic downtown, downturn. And he is isolated from them through the interpretation of the Geneva Agreement that a real refugee is unable to return to his country due to the fear of harm. His, his current municipality and nation state have the power to define his mobile possibilities. 
as well as his labor ethics. As such, they are keeping Elias confined within a constant marginalization of the mimicry, to use Baba's term of the subaltern, who must constantly prove their citizenship through measuring up the white construction of a good man, but never receiving the same treatment. Moreover, even if Elias has escaped legal liminality of the out-of-state subject, he is still stuck in the liminality of singlehood, as local women tend to relate to him as an exotic foreigner and not a prospective partner. He has already used his opportunity for family reunification to bring over a cousin. Deducted from my informer's experiences with a German immigration office, they understood it that it was only possible to invoke the family reunification once. And even then, there would be unforeseeable charges to pay, such as for the lawyer, to bribe the guards, to pay the smugglers, and then the other travel costs and temporal housing. As Elias is haunted by the ghost of his mother, the unexpected cost rising in Jordan that he feels obligated to help with, the memory of her familiar embrace, nostalgia for her food, the cultural intimacy of humorous discussion, and even argumentation. These haunting ghosts of the mothers uh, have re reappeared constantly in my confiders' discussions over the years. Uh, they have described it as part of the madness in their mind as they cannot tell the mothers how hard life has been and what they had to do to survive. Part of it is shame for what they did and for not being able to do more. But part of it is not wanting the ghost of the mother to become pertinent to the constant, through constant phone calls and a worried voice. And thus, the mother symbolizes an ambiguous space in spectrality. One of being a guiding spirit that calms the mind, but also a haunting ghost that demands responsibility and action when none can be found. Now, the recent, uh, the recent scholarly ghost writings, they stress a few key points to consider. Firstly, that ghostly presences are embedded in everyday experiences and they reflect hegemonic structures, a point I will return to shortly. Secondly, is the ambiguity of the specter or the uncanny feeling of knowing there is a ghost, but it's not quite tangible. It's a sense of fear or other emotions that cannot be worded as it has not yet gained legitimate legitimacy in social discourses. Thirdly, is the temporal aspect of the ghost or how post-traumatic stress disorder or other manifestation of the past can suddenly intrude into the present. In understanding this temporal effect, we should also ask when and why are such ghosts appearing? And are they more than one? Is there a gathering of ghosts? Fourthly, fourthly um, is the post-colonial gendered hegemony uh, of who can actually be haunted by ghosts or be a ghost? as so famously put forward by Gayatri Spivak, when she criticizes older scholars for the absence of the gender subaltern figure in their ghostly writings. Drawing on her previous work, she furthermore demonstrates uh, the recurrent legitimacy of humanitarian discourses that white men are best suited to save uh, women from evil brown men. And thus she argues for acknowledging the agency of the post-colonial women to become ghosts. Now I want to return to the first point, that is how spectrality is, uh, reflects the hierarchy within the national order of things, to say Malki. And to understand this enigmatic power of the mother ghost. And I think it's useful to employ concepts of the arrivant and the relevant. While these spectral concepts may at times entwine and other depart, Mostly the arriving specter symbolizes the fear of the ghost that may morph into reality in the future. In essence, it represents the fear that new claim for rights will gain legitimacy and in the return, the marginalized will oppress the oppressors. 
We need only to look at the rising xenophobia in Europe since 2015 or since the long summer of migration to understand the spectral aspect. But of course, it has a much longer history. Most recently, through the reconstructing of border techniques that produce precarious and disposable labor with liminal and temporal rights. While putting them under the constant surveillance of criminal suspicion, or what has been framed as climication and bordering. Thus, the arriving ghost that haunts the neoliberal system in Europe is the double and competing need for precarious worker on one hand, and on the other hand, the need to uphold the image of the nation as a civilized and develop, developed to maintain global power and control the humanitarian ideology of who is worthy enough to be saved, and thus constructing the vulnerable and supposedly grateful subject, the subaltern. And while the powerful in question perform ambivalent recognition of their colonial past, participation in the atrocity committed in the Second World War, or the continued dominance of native rights in the nation state, within the nation state. Now let's put man arriving from the global south as refugees in this construct. Firstly, they are expected to perform a physically strong, emotionally stoic, and Calvinistic labor masculinities. By this, I mean, they are supposed to work hard, not to be vocal, and not to demand their rights, but to be rewarded by the benevolent employers simply for being ethically committed to their work. Secondly, they are also expected to perform the dangerous Muslim masculinity that harasses local women and oppresses their female and queer compatriots. And yet it is exactly through this oxymoron that Western humanitarian power is maintained. As, as, as it justifies the need of heightened surveillance of men arriving from the global south while keeping them as precarious workers with liminal rights in danger of being deported if they don't comply. And it's through this construction of the evil black and brown man uh, that, need to be, that need to be managed by the Western states that produce the image of the vulnerable subaltern women who really in reality need their rights to be acknowledged, not their vulnerabilities. And thus black and brown men from the global South are constructed to perform this kind of dangerous Muslim masculinity so that the agency of the subaltern woman does not need to be recognized or at least not emphasized. So I would say, and because of this, the subaltern woman is the more powerful ghost to haunt the bordering system because who can stigmatize the mother without revealing one's guilt? Now from there, let's go on to the reverend specter that mainly represents the past trauma uh, that are through the uncanny feeling expected to happen again. This ghost is the most potent in my informants' lives. And for good reason, as recurrently, this ghost takes on corporality, such as through the security guards or at the mall or new amendments to the Geneva Convention as demonstrated by Elias' story in the beginning. But to understand my informants' intersectional position, we must also understand how their arriving specters are entwined with the Reverend Ghost. Or the, as subaltern men, they do have access to more resources than subaltern women. And thus they are hunted by a double specter that becomes pertinent when they tell stories of the violence they have witnessed done to their mothers. And they struggle to and their struggle to lift their mothers out of such violent spaces. Through their stories of continuous legal liminality, even if they have gained the right to refuge in a European country. And lastly, through their stories of heightened surveillance at work, making sure they abide to the local moral rules while their own rights are submerged in small texts. Now that said, their spectral stories of unsettlements also demonstrate another part, uh, another path a path of resistance and refusal, a path that demonstrates the laughing fox. Thus, lastly, I am applying, in applying theory, I am turning to affect masculinities, as critical scholars on men and masculinity have demonstrated that in, in the aftermath uh, of an event, 
or a breach, we can say, there is a brief moment of uncertainty that opens up the potential for a counterperformance to the hegemonic masculinities. I am drawing here on Raymond Connell's concept of hegemonic masculinities. But Connell, as well as other scholars, have stressed that we must also explore how neoliberal techniques position subordinate men within harmful structural social structures that are there, uh, where voicing their vulnerability may put them in even more danger. Now, following that line of thought and by applying the theory of affect masculinity, it has been demonstrated it is within certain potent moments following events or actions, hegemonic masculinities are abundant as they are understood as cruel optimism. Cruel optimism as men can never really measure up to the hegemonic image and thus they adopt querying or refusal tactics. Now let's explore better the men relationship with their mothers. Through the years and countless discussion, I have noticed how complex, uh, notice the complexity of the mother spirit looming in my friends' minds. In some cases, they have witnessed uh, violence done to their mothers, and this infuses their determination to send remittances as to empower their mothers and sisters. Furthermore, they feel obligated uh, to them as often it was their mothers that pushed them to step out of the normal structures. My first teacher in reality is my mother. She's an engineer. She learned how to teach me English all the way, all the time. She would talk with me English in the house because she told me you will need this when you go out for work. I don't know how she did it, but it's real. I'm out now. It's a quote from Mohammed. They would also describe how their mothers were instrumental uh, in pushing them to leave out of a bad situation, such as civil protest, gang wars, and location homophobia. Solon, whose origin I will keep obscure to protect his anonymity, experienced a regular beating from his father due to his feminist posture as a kid. He was dreaming to get away. And here he says, my father died when I was 18. So my mother took all his savings to pay the university and I left to study. I just, I didn't get any kind of scholarship. So I said to my mom, mom, I don't have any money. And she was helping me out a lot. I don't know what I was thinking. And then he was, shedding a tear. Others have described how their mother pushed them out of a violent possible futures. And here's a quote from Maradona. Oh, I should note before I kept going, if you see the names, they chose their own names, their own, own uh, pseudonyms. Okay. So this uh, running guy chose Maradona. And he says here, they killed him, his father. Uh, that was one reason I wanted to leave. I also wanted to, I, but I also wasn't ready to believe. I wanted to take revenge. We had guns at home and I could not see him, his uncle, just going, around, going on, like walking around, like nothing has happened and we were suffering. But on the other hand, my mother did not want me to do such a thing. And because I respected her a lot, I felt it best maybe I would leave. Now they described how difficult it was to leave their mothers, but sometimes these stories became a certain bravado, like here. I don't know, she cried. Yeah, because there was no choice. I had to leave like this. They gave me 10,000 cultures, Pakistani rupees. I went from Afghanistan to Pakistan and Pakistan to Iran. And this is Lee Hassan. It was also this sense of owing her and at the same time needing to protect her where they expressed their guilt. Such as when they were detailing to me why they needed to spend money, why they spent money on a private room to have some peace of mind after having spent several years crammed with the unknown others during their quest for international protection. Indeed, in some cases, the men in this study decided not to apply for refugee, even if they did fulfill the ascribed UNHCR requirements, because they feared that they would 
be forever separated from their mothers. As was the case with Imran, a Pakistani who as a teenager became a target of the neighborhood gang. He arrived in Athens alone at the age of 15, but soon started to work in one of the many sweatshops in Athens. Stuck in the limbo of the asylum system in Greece for nine years, he could not return to Pakistan when his mother got sick and passed away. As we shared a Pakistani meal and I disclosed to him my grief of losing my father, he conveyed to me that he still goes out to the sea, sometimes to scream at it, to let out his rage, grief, and longing for home. Currently, still without legal residency, he stays in Athens to send remittances so his father, who now has cancer, can buy medicine from privatized pharmaceutical companies. As such, his grief reveals many hierarchical aspects of mobility and neoliberal structures that keep men confined from their families. Now, in my previous work, I have aptly demonstrated how immobile men are forced into harmful structures of masculinity. But by highlighting why men, why the men are all too familiar with this corporality of the reverend specter or the trauma that will happen again in the future, let me give you some examples. Starting with this quote from Yun Fan, he, when he's recalling two events that occurred when he was 17 and living in Iran. He was an Iran, he was a very racist guy. One night I painted the whole wall. It was around 10 meters wall inside the company. I had written a very nice poem in calligraphy. I was sure next day the boss, he would kick me out call the police, deport me back to Afghanistan. But he was amazed. And after that, he was good to me. Now, mirroring Yunfan's experiences, my informants often described how they were reliant on the goodwill of powerful men in their transit locations. Sometimes it was their bosses, sometimes their brothers or uncles, and very often border guards or the police. Uh, and to demonstrate, let me go back to Yunfan's story. I was in a kind of depression. I was, I found myself doing things that I shouldn't. I started to do a lot of things. I don't know how to describe it, but I wasn't going outside. I was mostly inside the company. But the real reason why I left was because I was in love with a girl and there was an accident. On the day of the accident, I was in the company. They, her family, uh, asked me to bring me some money because they needed it at the hospital paying for I don't know shit things because doctors and everything are too expensive. I had a lot of money with me going from the company to take a taxi and I ran by the police station. They stopped me, checked me, found the money. I said, this is my money. I go for this reason to the hospital. They beat me a lot in front of the police in front of the police station. They took my money, the police, and only let me go four hours later. I could not even go to see her before they took her from the hospital. So it was this kind of hating everything myself. So three days later, I left, I went to Turkey. The men's stories of a male figure appearing as a reverend would continue in their stories uh, seeking international protection. Here is another example for Maradona, uh, an Iranian recalling experience in Turkey that it contributed to his decision to move on to Greece. I will not read that out loud, I'll just leave it. Upon arriving in Greece, most described the feeling hopeful to begin with, uh, but even those who arrived uh, before the economic crisis in Greece in 2009, they quickly experienced the surveillance and the expectation of performing the strong, compliant, masculine man, such as been seen in this uh, in the lower quote from Marco, where he is describing wanting to be picked up for agricultural work in a rural area in Greece. I didn't have any job for seven to eight months for a long time uh, because for the heavy job they wanted a muscular man and because they were seeing me with my glasses and I don't look so tough, so they didn't pick me up. Now, during the recession, and I would say all the way up to 2016, I would literally see the men thinning down to almost nothing 
becoming like wisps of figures, almost moving into spectrality themselves. Moreover, when being unemployed, uh, unsanctioned as a refugee and dependent on financial transmission from home, some of my informants would describe engaging in survival sex work. For examples, as Solon is describing here, I will begin in the second uh, paragraph. They cannot go anywhere. They are stuck here. They are not going, they were going somewhere, but were sent back to Greece because Greece is the first country where they entered without, with no documents. And they are very young, very prospering young guys, very good looking that would really love to do something, to study, to work, whatever. They're just wasting their life energy for non-love sex just to be paid to survive in this very harsh, rough time. So they're coming, the Greeks are coming to get this harsh masculine, this kind of Arab, just, I don't know, Iranians to sleep with. They're paying for that. It's a rent bar. I used to be there. And it was a really big mistake that I made in my life. Solon would go on to describe the violence he experienced when he had to walk past the bar and that after he found uh, another work downtown. I was attacked, threatened several times by these really ugly looking guys. And it was very dangerous. It was so scary. Oh gosh, now I'm here in this area and I don't feel very comfortable when I'm going back to my work in the morning. I really don't want to meet up with those people. And he uh, makes this distinction of, of ugly and beautiful, which is very interesting. But going on. So not surprisingly, uh, the men in this study would depict to me that they felt they were like, uh, they were going mad. They depicted specifically wanting a clean mind. And here's a quote from Muhammad, where he makes this distinction between a clear mind and a clean mind. Clear mind is the problems that are normal, problems uh, that will come to you in a normal day and you can forget in a night. But to want a clean mind is like things that are coming to your life and you cannot delete in one day. The big problems that I've, I've been through that I've had for a long time is the rhythm of going through this problem. It's in my memory. So to clean it is to find a way to remove it. All it needs is also time because of what you did to take your mind from this place in your mind. And thus they are describing problems within problems. And sometimes what they, uh, and sometimes that meant they sought relief in actions that they would regret later, but saw no other way out at the time. What these quotes uh, also describe is how they are needed, were needed and wanted because of their masculine bodies, while their minds were trying to cope with the survival strategies. And they would also describe their mothers constantly calling them, worried about their survival, as Leo would go on to say. Because of this situation, my mom is sending me money. It's also affecting her, her savings. I'm her son, and she doesn't want me to stay hungry or something like that. So it's wasting the nerves of my mother and her money. It's really, really awful. All the time she's saying, why, why are you there? Why did you choose Greece? You could have gone to a different country in Europe. You're stuck over there. And maybe I'll go, who knows? Others would also describe their mother phone calls causing them extreme stress and would, not, and would voice it so that they would not talk with her because their mind was not clean and that they wanted just few moments away from pressure. And of course, there were moments of hope and other spaces of sanctuary uh, in their transit journeys. For example, when a 13 Syrian man instigated a peaceful sit-in uh, sit in the winter of 2014 in front of the Greek parliament in Athens. The Syrians had familiarized themselves with the political landscape and allied with members of a refugee and migrant solidarity group in Exarchia, a neighborhood in Athens that is often associated with anarchism, though not everyone in the neighborhood assigned to that identification. 
Now that said, the Syrian organizer felt at ease collaborating with the refugee solidarity group in Exarchia, as collectively they emphasized practices of inclusivity, inclusivity, care, dignity, and democracy. After the fast, uh, Syrian's fast track procedures for refugee status recognition uh, on humanitarian grounds were accepted with the Greek government, making it possible for them to move on to Germany and other countries, some resentments arose among other ethnic men, and most of them had been waiting for over a decade for the same recognition, some of which would cast doubt on the Syrians' tactics of sitting to demand rights, as that was not perceived as very masculine. Now, these politics of masculine inclusion and, and exclusion can be very well seen uh, in Rena Kukureya's work among migrant men in Greece. But during this time um, in Athens, the Syrian aimed to show solidarity with people of other ethnicities as well. And in the end, they followed through of getting papers for over 800 people. All of them left Greece, but my friend Mohammed, one of the organizers, did not leave until he thought everyone uh, else had departed safely. He, as well as several others, also uh, extended their inclusive practices to other marginalized groups, such as people on the queer spectrum. Thus, in my previous works, I've coined their experiences and practices as hunted subjectivity, as they could relate to other experiences of marginalization and of being considered, socially considered, a problem. And I must admit, to my surprise, that they did not change this uh, attitude after they got residency in Germany. Thus, I believe this can reflect the men's experiences with the reverent haunting, the resistance, and the breach occurring in the aftermath of events. It displays how affects come into play in the performance of masculinity. Now let's head over to Germany. Some of my informants in Greece, in Germany, sorry, and in France, I might add, have been able to build uh, this kind of decent life, a settled life with a steady income, a wife, kids, and a good house. But the vocational contract or the so-called ausbuilding offered, them, uh, offered to them by the German state and the German companies have worked well. Even if they said adjusting to the German morality of valuating punctuality over quality, was a bit strange to them to begin with. But those who describe themselves as happy and content today are not the ones who have to worry about their mothers. And to understand this, let's revisit Mohammed. Before the war, uh, Mohammed was learning to become a medical doctor. After he arrived in Germany, he tried to re-enter into his studies, uh, but kept on feeling like he was in a catch-22 situation. On one hand, he would one hand he was offered a place in a German university with a small allowance. But on the other hand, he had to study much harder than the other students to keep up with the academic German language, while also doing part-time jobs so he could send remittances to a family that for a long time had been on the run to Idlib. If I will study, my sister and my brothers will not be able to study because my parents only have money for food. So I can study. I need them to study, so I should work. Time is running out. His mind was also wrought with the problems and laced with family reunification, constantly coming across new hindrances that required more money and or tough decisions. Thus he abandoned his studies, took on more precarious work and moved to a location where rent was cheaper. After years of displacement with rent and danger rising in Idlib as well, his mother also decided that she wanted to go back to her old house in the center of Syria. Besides the liminality knew that would await her and her family in camps in Turkey and Greece, she was also skeptical what, that her engineer education would be correctly valued in Germany. And then her only possibilities would be cleaning other women's houses. But returning to Syria meant that certain Syrian soldiers and bureaucrats had to be bribed. So the money 
Mohammed had saved for the family reunification went to the Syrian regime that caused Mohammed to become a refugee to begin with. Thus, even if the men in this study gained some century in Germany, most of them describe being haunted by the reverend ghost of the bordering. In, Ger uh, yeah. in Germany, the ghost also morphed into the surveillance of their time and labor ethics, such as Nabil, dis uh, Nabil described being offered a well-paid job in a city, but because he had to send remittances, he could not afford to rent uh, he could only afford to rent outside the city. And from uh, a long experience, he knew that he could not rely on the German trains to be accurate. And even if he would be few minutes late, he would be fired. So now he works as a man of many talents in several restaurants where he is a waiter, security guard, computer wizard, and sometimes a plumber. To give another example, for a while Elias worked as a nurse only to have one of his co-workers follow him with a mobile phone, filming his caring practices for the elderly as he was thought not to be sufficiently quick enough. And his co-workers complained to his boss that he was spending too much time talking with the patients. Again and again and again, my informants would recount similar experiences of being haunted by time, cultural ethics and language barriers. In a recent study conducted in West Germany on projects meant to integrate refugees into society, it demonstrated that to absolve the fear among the locals of foreign bodies and foreign cultures, the discourse used in the media indicated that Germans simply needed to reach out and teach the incomers their moral way of life and that refugees would welcome such guidance. However, the discussion with the Muslim informants in this study indicates that they felt that they were not sufficiently uh, informed sufficiently on the small text laced within this moral contract. Moreover, that local people could sideline this contract when it suited them. For example, as can be seen in Naples, quote, you know, I worked here in this place for a long time and every time a foreigner, you know, someone from a Muslim country comes to work, they don't make a contract. But when a German starts working, and they always make a detailed contract with all the worker rights intact. Furthermore, they were being described being guided, quote unquote, by employers of companies to sign papers to pay a certain amount a month, a month, some certain amount of money a month, only to find that in the small tax there was a glitch that allowed the company to charge them much more. And they uh, could not fight it without the help of a very expensive lawyer. In this way, they would become trapped within the neoliberal labyrinthism of small text and cultural understanding of morality. Thus, not surprisingly, our dialogues conveyed their uncanny sense that they were being swindled and that the Germans only wanted them to work as lifter of heavy things. Nabil also added that by German law, they were um, supposed to work only eight hours, but abiding by those laws would get them would never get them out of this situation. And thus he took uh, on extra work in the black market, sometimes as a carrier of heavy things and sometimes as a bouncer. But during the COVID, he has repeatedly been denied payments. He dares not to, repro uh, to report this misuse of his time in his laboring body, as he fears that his own participation in the black market economy will be considered as a crime and he will lose, in, lose his residency permit and be sent back. Therefore, this is what I mean by the men being sat within harmful masculine structures. As they all tell stories of the local moral hegemony over time and ethics set up within a structure of immigration where they are constantly fear that a small misstep will get them deported. In some cases, uh, they knew of young Syrian men that committed suicides because of this, or simply died out of a heart attack because of their worries in Germany. In this sense, the COVID pandemic has added to the anxieties as they are prohibited to meet the few friends they have made in Germany, or as Marco would go on and say, sometimes maybe you do something to get out of your mind, to walk in the nature, to sit in the woods, to meet friends, 
who are really positive, who give you support, who are pushing you from behind when you need it. Now, during the COVID, the restrictive measures, this proved much more difficult. Uh, though, of course, some found new friends through video gaming and some slightly broke the rules. But thus their dialogues would again describe the desire for the clean mind, as can be seen in the later quotes. Now, most of them enduring the COVID and enduring the double standard of morality simply became a tactic, uh, simply became a tactic to endure time until their citizenship was in hand. Outsmart the reverend ghost by patience, but also with small tactics of maneuvering the border that separated them from the benign spirit of the mother. When first seeking asylum in Germany, my interlocutors described being confined within a house, then a city area, afterwards the German state, and lastly within Europe. If they tended to move elsewhere, they needed a visa or a permit. Thus many substituted the feeling of family through visiting other relatives in Europe. They perform a circular migration within Europe. Even if this sometimes meant breaking the COVID regulations, it was, it was thought worth it to eat together the familiar food, to compare bordering tactics and refugee support, and to laugh at the absurd absurdity of some of those regulations. In this, I believe that humor became the countering tactic to banish both the ghost of the mother and the uncanny looming of the, of the bordering. Not a straight out resistant, resistance, but refusal to let this labyrinth of doom end them. Consider this as an outmaneuvering the hegemony where the affect is directed elsewhere. In doing the roundabout migration, they became almost familiar with the border guards. This they used for the foxing. And to demonstrate, let me end here with the story of Luke. When Luke arrived in Germany in 2013, he was denied a refugee status, but pro, uh, provided with a special humanitarian residency in Germany due to his heart condition. My heart is my life, Luke actually said, as, he, as we stepped away from the security guards in the train station in Köln. They had stopped him with grim faces for not wearing a mask. An Algerian in his 30s, dressed in khakis and a black leather jacket, with his hair tied up in a knot, in many ways resembling a Greek anarchist. What do you mean, your heart is your life? I asked. Well, I would never have gotten residency in Germany if it weren't for my heart defect, he replied. I would not be able to travel as I want. And then he went to explain the incident with the security guard. I got this document from my doctor to declare that I cannot wear a mask. Indeed, I had noticed him uh, drawing up a white paper to hand to the security guards, and suddenly the guards seemed apologetic, indicating for him to move on. It's a game, he explained. When I go into stories, I try to wear the mask for a little while as out of respect for others. But it's a game with the security guards, game that I now know how to play. He laughed. He was. He has indeed visited his extended family in London so many times that he has been granted a permanent visa in, to the UK. Thus, one day he dared to travel to Algeria, knowing that with his new visa, he could always go to the UK if all else failed. On his way to out of Germany, he was detained. The border guards could not comprehend why he had a residency permit but had been denied asylum. Furthermore, they could not understand why his heart failure could not have been treated in the UK with his extended family members uh, or in Algeria with his mother, who is now a widow. So he told stories of his mother sleeping with a new man and how that man had discredited him to the other family members. The guards gave up trying to understand and let him through. In Algeria, in dinner with his family, they laughed at this endlessly with his mother blushing a bit, for then she said, a recently widowed Muslim woman simply does not simply go and sleep around with new men, as he recounted. In this, in this presentation, 
I have aimed to demonstrate the agency of unsettled mothers to become ghosts that can haunt their sons and through them, the border regime. Their empowerment is directed towards their son as older patriarchal and bordering structure obscure their rights. Thus, the mother symbolizes the double spectrality threatening to unveil the violence of structures and force to maintain an economic and humanitarian hegemony in the world. For let's not forget, some mothers fly more easily than others. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> oh, I, I know I, I spent a lot of time um, recounting some of my um, my informant stories, but I would be happy to if someone wants to end the slideshow, if anyone wants to ask questions or uh, critically think about um, the quotes or the work. So, uh, how? Let me see here. I've stopped sharing. Uh, yeah. And please raise your hands if you want to speak. Ontology. Yes. Uh, ontology is drawn from um, the concept a little bit from ontology, but in a way it's considered that we understand this uncanny aspects of our life that it will be that we feel that it's somewhere somehow there it's this in between like in the affect theory there is some there in between before action or before interpretation so it's a um, a space of this in between let me see if i go back to my back to um Right. There is a grad in beginning. Uh, I am organizing on migration and mobilities. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm not sure how to explain the ontology further than I did in my text. Um, maybe it's a bit complex, but it's a lot about interpretation. But the thing that we kind of know that it's there, but it's not quite worded. And suddenly it comes back at us with a force. So in a way, uh, for, my, for my interlocutors experiencing the border, it's like knowing that there is a, a surveillance over them, but never quite knowing where it is or how it will hit them. Um, but this has also been described as, uh, in other research has been described as uh, people who have experienced sexual violence, for example, who, suddenly there's a, a tripper, there's something, there's something in their environment that reminds them that there is a, of this violence and, and it affects the body. So um, it can be interpreted uh, in several ways, but this is one of the ways the ontology is kind of is being used. And I find it interesting to use that uh, on the gender of men, on how they are under the shadow of threat, but also how, um, in particular, why are we not recognizing more family reunification? Uh, why are we not uh, why are we not supporting more mothers to to have more rights on their own, or or the just respecting their way of being able to come to Europe? Because sometimes it is through their sons, and yeah. More questions. Mm -hmm. No, sorry, Carolyn, let Carolyn go first. Well, I mean, mine was um, maybe a more general question. First of all, thank you so much. That was so rich um, in terms of both the theoretical perspectives that you brought to bear on this work, but also just the sheer amount of ethnographic work it seems that you have done, you put into this. And I am interested in, in that methodology. Um, you say that this has been 10 years working with the same people. You, you count them as your friends. It sounds like they were involved, as you say, in choosing their pseudonyms. Um, so I'm just interested in hearing a little bit more about your process and how it is working. Like, do you, 
do you see your research participants as being like collaborators in this work? And, and do you, do you um, like let them see the article or the manuscript and, and do, you, do they work with you on that? Like, I'm just curious about, yeah, about yeah, your process. Yeah, of course. Um, are this? Can I just quickly butt in because my question really piggybacks well on Caroline's um, uh, <clears throat> because you're a female researcher and you're working with refugee men who are identifying themselves as male with the gendered identity. I just wanted to know because you've had such long relationship, how was it to work? Um, female researcher working with migrant men. Um, could you talk a bit more because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. Mm, yeah, well, I, I write about it elsewhere, but um, one of the things that I did to begin with was to kind of um, to dress myself more as asexual in a way that I would uh, kind of try to undress any um, identification of my uh, sexuality of, of, as a woman. And I don't quite identify either on that cis spectrum, I, I kind of identify myself a little bit more broader. Um, but at the time, I mostly I was just considering because the sexual harassment in downtown Greece can sometimes be uh, quite a lot. And even from the police, I would particularly experience this from uh, police and from older Greek men. So, uh, and I was also afraid knowing that I was, um, an activist working with activists, refugee activists, that Golden Dawn was attacking people um, who was working with activists. So I, and I was living very close to the city border where the Golden Dawn, the neo-Nazi were living. So there was part of the why reasons why I want to undress my um, sexuality in any point. Uh, so slowly it kind of started to evolve with the interlocutors that I, my, the immigrant men that I was um, uh, communicating with is they started to see me a little bit in the mother figure. And I started to emphasize this because also I have a older son who is now almost 30. And of course I missed him a lot. Um, so I would sometimes you know, be baking cakes and bringing them over. Um, it was a kind of tradition in the, the solidarity group that I participated with that people would sometimes just bring things to their students, to the class. And the class was both in the way that it was, um, I was a student, I was studying with my interlocutors as a learning Greek, but also teaching English. And very interesting what happened was that through our discussions and through them kind of me just listening to them, just, you know, that's what I mean by engaged, it's just that we, we we sit down, we talk. Uh, but then what happened also was that we needed to walk back from class. We needed to walk past all the police so surveillance and the Golden Dawn area, all this kind of very dangerous area in Athens. So what happened was that they would often offer to walk me home. They would walk me home to make sure that I was safe. But at the same time, my kind of whiteness would protect them from being picked up by the police. So in this is partly why it's part of the engaged tactic and why they trusted me and why they started to speak with me in, in the regular process. Um, then through the process of, uh, I tried to always to do what I called um, a, a recurrent uh, confirmed uh, consent, uh, consent in a way that I, um, I thought about this for a long time because it's a, I would have liked to have them all involved, but sometimes they have very different opinions on different things. So what I do is that I send them the articles before I publish them. I, I have, I've, that's what I've done. I've, I've sent to them, okay, I'm, you know, are you okay if I publish this part of your story? Or if I'm using a photograph I'm, like I did today, I get permission, but it's okay. Can I use this photograph? Um, None of them, the photographs you have seen today are of the same men that I'm speaking. I mix it up to make it so that they cannot be identified. Um, but yeah, that's what, how I try to interact with them. I, you know, I say, okay, I'm, I'm writing this. Is it okay with you that I use the story that you told me or something like that? That's how I try to use the ref, uh, reaffirmed consent 
but also in a way that after we spoke, we would known for each other for a very long time. We would do the interview the, in the beginning in Greece, but then I would always come back to them and said, are you okay with what you told me? It's like, is this is okay? Are you, are you at ease? And I would usually get, you know, I trust you. And as I say, sometimes they would even refer to me as mom. They would literally call me mom. So that was, that was kind of our, that's how I built this relationship. And Rena probably is familiar with this. Yeah, I was laughing when you were saying about, you know, um, the mother figure, because I've been called Ami, Ami Jan, or dear mm-hmm. beloved mother. Or, um, yeah, so, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, but I'm just curious. You said, you know, you were missing your child and I teach in migration, the displaced love. So I'm wondering how much of your article or your discussion about the ghost of a mother is informed by your missing your child while you were in Greece too, knowing exactly what you just told us. I'm sorry, I'm taking your time, but this is the last question I'll ask you. <laughs> no, actually, crazy enough, it's more infused with my mother worrying about me because I participated in all the protests, um, I was shot at with rubber bullets uh, in the in the protest and and kind of things and as an Icelander who we have pretty have pretty safe environment, this was a bit shocking experience for me. Um, but my mother would be constantly calling to see if I was okay, and this is something that we we could talk about uh, with the experience both the experience I had of I lost my father during my field work. So that kind of came into to the talk and how we related to the grief. And also my experiences of my mother constantly calling them led to the discussion that where they would also tell me about how they were constantly being called by their mothers. So it kind of is more infused by that than my son. <laughs> so strangely enough. Hmm. More? Can I, can I go? I don't want to um, steal time from, from our audience, but thank you, Ardis. You know, this this was brilliant, really. Um, especially, you know, the ontology part, it reminded me, uh, I think it was Mark Fisher who uh, defined it as a nostalgia for future. And, yes. uh, and you reminded me that I have to go back to that, that text specifically. So thank you for that. And also, you know, I mean, it was really brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I mean, my question is uh, kind of related to the reception uh, of your work, really, especially in Sweden, um, mm-hmm. given the kind of the sociopolitical context in Sweden, you know, the rise of fascism, um, mm-hmm. you know, resembling the New Dawn, I guess, um, or Golden Dawn. And so how was it? <laughs> Well, I've never been to Sweden. That's the problem. That's the only country I haven't. Oh, I have been to Sweden, sorry, but I haven't visited my interlocutors there. So our communication has been mostly through the through the. Ch- I found out a lot of the things that I, the boys would say to me in the chat in German. Um, they would tell me much more detailed. So maybe on the chat, they tell me, yeah, I'm fine. It's okay. I'm doing okay. But then uh, when I come, we sit down, they cook for me. this, I think they're losing you. Or is it just me? Oh. Maybe we can give her a minute to try and get back here. So what do you want to do? I don't know what's happening here right now. Um, it's 2.12. Um, maybe you want to message to her? 
Um, so she's just kicking. She's off now. Might give her another minute to see. Sometimes people pop right back. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe, you know, like, oh, there we go. Sorry, my internet failed. You're back. <laughs> um, yeah, the, I read in uh, in Sweden a very interesting. Um, this is a very interesting book uh, done by scholars who are also refugee themselves, indicating how women are not uh, valued for their education and they are stigmatized for where they live in Sweden. So. You know, even they're supposed to go somewhere, they, they live in certain neighborhoods. Um, yeah, they are stigmatized for it. They're stigmatized for women who have too many children and so forth and so forth. That is, it's a quite much more complex um, complex stories. Uh, another thing I heard from Sweden, which I, as, is, as you say, this is more what I'm hearing, which is not quite confirmed, is um, that, um, Syrian men are not thought capable of running a business. And this is something I find very interesting. Like the stigma of knowing who can run a business and who not. While um, a lot of uh, family kind of um, companies are run through the processing of food. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I asked specifically about Sweden um, uh, thinking your connection to Karlstad, but also, you know, because of stories like these, right? I mean, um, yeah, thank yeah. you so much. I have a few fellow colleagues who are working on the, on this in, in, uh, in Sweden, and hopefully me and Rena will, uh, in the journal that we are working on, we will have more. Uh, more <laughs> Looking forward to it. Grounded um, articles, yeah. Are there any more questions? No. Um, thank you so much, um, um, Arthas, for that lovely talk. Um, I don't know whether Carla and Aicha, you want to have the last words. I really appreciated it. I'd urge you to publish the paper sooner than later. Don't work on too many iterations, um, but I'd really like to hear more about it. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And I second the publishing. It sounds like, I mean, I, I thought maybe it could have been published already. It sounds like it's very tight and, and ready to go, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I will I will work on it when I finish teaching. <laughs> yeah. That's always the case. Yes. So, and thank you everyone in the audience for joining us today. I know it's getting into the busy time of end of term already. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. we really appreciate your continued presence at SNED. Um, and Migration Speaks. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Ciao, ciao. Or we say in Greek, yasas. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.